Surprisingly, The Great Gatsby wasn't a smash hit right out of the gates. In its 1925 release, it wasn't met with astonishing reviews or surging sales. It wasn't actually until the 1940s, well into them, years after Fitzgerald's death, uh, that the novel's reputation was chalked up to anything more than just this negligible little novel and a complete commercial failure. Meaning even for Fitzgerald, he never actually lived to see the day where his novel was considered something uh, worthwhile, was considered a success, was considered anything worth, uh, you know, a great reputation in literature. But then, fate arose. During World War II, sets of various paperback novels were given to troops abroad, and randomly, The Great Gatsby was included within those sets. That put the novel square in front of an entire generation, and from that time forward, it exploded in commercial popularity as well as critical acclaim. And today, it's held as one of the greatest American novels ever written, if not the great American novel. It's considered the defining work of the jazz age, offering the elite portrait of the Roaring Twenties. And plus, it contains some of the most beautiful language I have ever encountered. That's one of the reasons why I enjoy reading the book so much, is just because of the, really, the, the beauty, the rhythm uh, that you know, the language has throughout the entirety of it. And yet, when venturing into interpreting this grand work, that same beautiful language presents one of the most twisted, and knotted tangles I have ever attempted to unravel. But I'm glad to say that after a second read, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, I believe I've figured something out, that The Great Gatsby intends to spark an electrifying hope in the boundless possibilities of life, while simultaneously tempering that hope with a warning of the tragic colonists some dreams deliver. host Trevor and this is the From Argyle Street podcast where we're breaking down one great work of fiction at a time and today we're looking at The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. All right story recap let's just kind of walk through uh, the narrative here spoiler alert so the novel opens with the voice of Nick Carraway the narrator who relays the entire story of a summer he spent working in New York and living on Long Island in a small bungalow he'd rented that sat beside this enormous mansion, the mansion belonging to one Mr. J. Gatsby. So the first three chapters recount three summer nights whose connections are slowly drawn. In chapter one, Nick introduces himself, recounts his ambitions that led him east, and then flows into the story of his initial visit to his cousin Daisy and her husband, Tom Buchanan, who also live in Long Island but across the bay from him. Jordan Baker, who Nick shares a summer romance with, is also present, and they meet uh, for the first time at this, um, at this dinner party. Over the course of the evening, Jordan informs Nick that Tom has a woman on the side. This woman keeps calling Tom, and the shrill ringing of the telephone sustains this constant tension throughout the night. Chapter 2. Tom takes Nick into New York City, picking up his woman on the side, Myrtle, along the way. This wild party ensues in Tom and Myrtle's Manhattan apartment. Uh, it feels like chaos to me whenever I read it. The evening uh, finally comes to a close when Tom slaps Myrtle for saying Daisy's name, and it just kind of ends in a train wreck. Chapter three, Nick receives an invitation from his mysterious neighbor Gatsby to attend one of the magnificent parties that he's been throwing each and every weekend across the entire summer. 
Nick attends the party, and uh, while he's there, he bumps into Jordan Baker, who Gatsby, at a certain point in the evening, then pulls aside, pulling Jordan Baker aside to reveal private information to that comes to concern Nick uh, pretty pretty quickly. So Nick reflects uh, at the end of chapter three on the connection that he slowly drew between these three days that then sets the stage for everything that follows after in the novel. Chapter four, one day out of the blue Gatsby takes Nick into New York City driving in his beautiful yellow car and on the way Gatsby provides a backstory for himself, one which is mostly untrue. And then they go to lunch where they meet uh, Meyer Wolfsheim, who's Gatsby's business associate, uh, his business connection, as uh, Wolfsheim says, at a speakeasy beneath a barbershop uh, in order for Wolfsheim to vouch for Gatsby's character. The barbershop note, uh, I think that's actually just something that's included in the film. I don't think it's in the novel, but uh, it is a nice touch. So anyways, then Nick is brought to tea with Jordan Baker, who informs Nick of Gatsby's undying love for Gatsby. And Gatsby's request that Nick invite Daisy to tea so that Gatsby can be reunited with her. So you can see how through these chapters, Nick is kind of put in some awkward situations, right? He's at a party with Tom Buchanan uh, while Tom is with his, uh, you know, his woman on the side when Nick is actually Daisy's cousin. Uh, And now here, Nick is being asked to arrange a meeting between Daisy and Gatsby, right? He gets put in a lot of awkward situations. And there's, there's actually quite a uh, kind of an interesting line of thought to get into what is Nick's motivation in writing at all? And uh, how reliable of a narrator is he? And I'm looking forward to commenting on that one of the later articles. But uh, for now, let's just keep plugging along and keep the focus on Gatsby. So chapter five, Nick invites Daisy to tea at his small bungalow. She arrives, and at first, the meeting between her and Gatsby is intensely awkward uh, until Nick calls Gatsby out on being rude and acting like a boy. Then Gatsby gets it together, reunites with Daisy, and provides a tour of his mansion to Nick and Daisy. Chapter six, Nick opens and closes this chapter by relaying some of Gatsby's true past and of how his undying love for Daisy was born. And besides that, Daisy and Tom attend one of Gatsby's parties, and somehow the party doesn't seem to go as Gatsby wishes. Not a lot happens in terms of moving the narrative forward in chapter six, but it's really important when it comes to understanding who Gatsby is and really the role that Daisy played within his life. And then in chapter seven, uh, it all breaks loose. (laughs) This is the chapter where Nick, Jordan, and Gatsby are all invited over to Tom and Daisy's for lunch, where because of the intensity of the heat, they drink gin rickies in greedy swallows. Daisy and Gatsby's affair is revealed to Tom, and following the revelation, they all go into New York City, but in two separate cars, with Gatsby and Daisy driving together, and then with the other three driving in the other car. And so when they're in New York, they decide to get a room at the Plaza and just kind of hang out there. And while they're in that room at the Plaza Hotel, uh, Gatsby and Tom have it out. Tom reveals the crooked sources of Gatsby's wealth and Daisy is unable to say that she never loved Tom, something that Gatsby really wants her to do. And so in the end, Gatsby loses. And then on Gatsby and Daisy's drive back to Long Island as they pass through the Valley of Ashes, Tom's mistress, Myrtle, dashes at the speeding car. She's struck and killed instantly while Gatsby and Daisy's car never stops. It just keeps driving. And it's later revealed that Daisy, not Gatsby, was driving. Chapter eight, 
Gatsby informs Nick of his true origins, right? Everything that Nick records for us in chapter six, he actually learns in chapter eight, in the events of chapter eight, but he just gives it to us kind of out of order. So they meet after everything that takes place in chapter seven, Gatsby, you know, kind of confides in Nick really who he is, where he came from, how he got to be where he is. And that all happens the morning after Myrtle's death. Gatsby uh, is still awaiting Daisy's call that morning when Nick leaves for work uh, and the call never comes. Myrtle's bereaved husband, the mechanic, learns from Tom that Gatsby's the real owner of the car, leading him to believe that Gatsby killed Myrtle and even to suspect that Gatsby was the one who was having an affair with Myrtle. And as the chapter closes, he shoots Gatsby dead while Gatsby's floating in his pool and then turns the gun on himself. Chapter 9. The final chapter. Nick recites his distress at Gatsby's death and how unnerved he was to find that no one else cared. No one, none could be bothered to attend Gatsby's funeral, not even Daisy. And at the very close of the book, at the closing section really is just marked by Nick's kind of introspective dives that happen throughout the novel as he contemplates the difference between the East and the West in the country and furthermore reflects on and comments upon Gatsby's green light. He says this, that Gatsby believed in the green light. But then his final words suggest that the more unabated our striving is for it, for the green light, the further it recedes beyond our grasp, because the green light is somehow unattainable, unreachable, an impossibility to truly take hold of. And then, just like that, without a further word or clarification, the novel ends. So that is the story recap. Now let's jump into the fun part and interpretation, the grasping of a dream, where we're getting after the question, what does this novel mean? This is where we attempt to solve the puzzle. So here it is. The Great Gatsby, more than anything else, is a reminder to dream. But it's a reminder laced with a warning concerning the catastrophe that can accompany the pursuit of an unattainable dream. The Great Gatsby, more than anything else, is a reminder to dream, but it's a reminder laced with a warning concerning the catastrophe that can accompany the pursuit of an unattainable dream. So the Great Gatsby functions on two levels. There's the actual plot, the narrative that involves all of the characters and their motivations and the way things unfold between them, right? Just like any other novel. But then the Great Gatsby also has this symbolism that the novel is rife with, right? Nearly to the point of overflowing where all of these people and places and objects are infused with a particular meaning that adds to the overall significance of the novel. And so what I want to do is just lay out the symbols first and then walk through how the more significant symbols contribute to the plot and really help to create the novel's overarching meaning. And so just laying out um, most of them, you've got the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, right, which represent God. You've got West Egg, which is the new money. That's where Gatsby lives. You've got East Egg, which is old money. That's where Daisy and Tom are. Uh, you've got Daisy, which represents wealth, and then you've got the green light, which represents Gatsby's wealth-marked dream. Now, those two are um, really, I think, the most important ones when it comes to understanding the novel. And there's some debate as to what they mean, especially when it comes to the green light. But laying those out now, let's go ahead and just walk through why uh, I think this is what they mean. So Daisy equals wealth. Through the entire novel, Nick comments again and again and again on Daisy's voice that it contains some magical quality. 
After countless references like this, in chapter 7, he finally discloses the nature of that magical quality from the mouth of Gatsby himself. She's got an indiscreet voice, I remarked. This is Nick speaking. It's full of, I hesitated, right? He doesn't know how to complete the sentence. Her voice is full of money, he said suddenly. That was it. I'd never understood it before. It was full of money. That was the inexhaustible charm that rose and fell in it, the jingle of it, the symbol song of it. High in a white palace, the king's daughter, the golden girl. In Nick's account, some ambitious greatness, some infinite capacity to dream and hope marked Gatsby from the beginning. But when he met Daisy, everything changed. And it's important to understand that she represents wealth all throughout, and it's it's directly connected to her voice. And so Daisy represents wealth. And then we see that you know, Gatsby's marked by this infinite capacity to dream, but when he meets Daisy, who represents wealth, everything changes. And their first kiss, as he says in chapter six, in particular, changed everything. And this is the line. He knew that when he kissed this girl and forever wed his unutterable visions to her perishable breath, his mind would never romp again like the mind of God. Now, the great Gatsby is replete with phrases like that, never romp again like the mind of God, that at first glance are remarkably difficult to understand and to distinguish whether it's some kind of profound revelation with one clear meaning or if it's just pretty language whose actual substance is just vague and muddy. And in this instance, I, I think it does mean something. Right. God, at least from a Judeo-Christian perspective, which largely marked the society within which Fitzgerald wrote, is credited with creating all is credited with creating all things right god is the creator of every thing in the same vein gatsby was a creator his finest invention being himself his transformation from james gats the son of poor shiftless farmers from north dakota to the mysterious wealthy jay gatsby himself but when he kissed daisy his desire for greatness was waylaid as his capacity for hope became eternally anchored to one singular person. Gatsby himself comments on this in relating his story to Nick. He, he says this, I can't describe to you how surprised I was to find out I loved her, old sport. I even hoped for a while that she'd throw me over, but she didn't because she was in love with me too. She thought I knew a lot because I knew different things from her. Well, there I was way off my ambitions, getting deeper in love every minute, and all of a sudden I didn't care. What was the use of doing great things if I could have a better time telling her of what I was going to do? Right, that's the important line right there. What was the use of doing great things if I could have a better time telling her of what I was going to do? When he meets Daisy, when he kisses her, right, the entire direction, the trajectory of his life is, is shifted it changed and it becomes entirely oriented around her. However, circumstances ensured that they could not be together, right? Because she was old money and he was not. Not to mention that the circumstances just of their lives pull them apart as he is shipped off to war to fight in World War One. And I think what's interesting is if you take that line in connection, uh, what he says there about doing great things versus telling her what he was gonna do, if you take that in connection with the trajectory of Gatsby's life after he meets there, her, you can see, uh, you can see the influence that she had upon him. 
Because following that, he gets shipped off to fight in World War I, where he won real honor, right, as a legitimate war hero, that kind of verified by that medal from Montenegro. That part of his story really is true. And then by chance, this free education at Oxford, of all places, just falls into his lap. And by all accounts, he is well on his way to the great life that he had yearned for since his youth. It's all happening, right? It's right in his hands. But then he receives this letter from Daisy informing her, informing him of her engagement and soon coming marriage to Tom Buchanan that she has ceased to wait for him. And in emotional agony, he deserts Oxford. He returns stateside penniless with nothing and vows to do whatever is necessary to win Daisy back. And then enters Meyer Wolfsheim. Gatsby's need for Daisy creates his need for wealth. That insatiable, and that insatiable need creates a weakness in him, a vulnerability that he's willing to sell himself to enter organized crime in order to amass the wealth and create the facade he needs, uh, he believes he needs in order to win Daisy back. And that dream of becoming who he needs to be and of winning Daisy back is all represented by the green light. Because in my opinion, the green light equals, it represents Gatsby's wealth-marked dream. At first, it's difficult to distinguish what Nick truly thinks of the green light. He believes Gatsby is great and Gatsby believes in the green light. But the novel is also an account of Gatsby's downfall. It's a tragedy, right? So what of it? Well, apparently papers upon papers uh, upon papers have been written arguing over what the green light actually means. Some take it as a symbol of Gatsby's hopes and dreams, especially his love for Daisy. Some hold it to be Daisy's undying love for Gatsby. Personally, I understand it to be Gatsby's dream of a life with Daisy that's grounded in his conviction that he needs wealth to have her. It represents what happened to his hopes and dreams upon his first kiss with Daisy. He imagined an entire life that was completely centered on her and threw himself endlessly into its pursuit. Nick alludes to this when he introduces Gatsby in the novel's opening pages. He says this, that this responsiveness of Gatsby's had nothing to do with that flabby impressionability which is dignified under the name of the creative temperament. It was an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness such as I have never found in any other person and which is not likely I shall ever find again. No, Gatsby turned out all right at the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. Uh, he mentions that something preyed on Gatsby and led to his downfall. As Gatsby's origins unfold, a distinction is drawn between his infinite capacity for hope and his attachment to the green light. When his capacity met Daisy, it gave birth to the green light, that which preyed upon him. In chapter five, once he and Daisy are finally reunited, Nick comments on the lost significance of the green light and then goes on to observe how the realization of Gatsby's fantasy must have fallen short of his expectations. Right, there's this paragraph towards the end of that chapter saying this, that as I went over to say goodbye, I saw that the expression of bewilderment had, be had come back into Gatsby's face as though a faint doubt had occurred to him as to the quality of his present happiness. Almost five years, 
There must have been moments, even that afternoon, when Daisy tumbled short of his dreams, not through her own fault, but because of the colossal vitality of his illusion. At the end of the passage, Daisy whispers something to Gatsby, and the enchantment is anchored once more because her voice was her one feature that couldn't be overdreamed. Gatsby grasped hold of his dream, the green light itself, and found it lacking. But her voice, that charming allure of wealth, whispered to him promises of more. I think this explains Gatsby's somewhat strange demand later on that Daisy tell Tom she never loved him. He's trying to relive the past, to wash away the past five years, but also he believes that if his claim on her was only greater and more exclusive, then he would no longer feel empty, right? In the same way that sometimes people can fall into the, the belief that more money will make things better if they just have a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, that more is what will bring the, the satisfaction that seems impossible to truly take hold of. And this symbolic thread, I think, may even extend to the accident on the road on the return from New York City. Gatsby's dream demanded so much of him that it became that which drove his life, right? Symbolized by Daisy driving the car rather than him. And unfortunately, it made an absolute wreck of it. Therefore, to split the hairs of Fitzgerald's symbolism, the green light is not good as Gatsby's particular wealth-marked dream although his capacity for dreaming is. But Gatsby is far from the only one to believe that the answer to the hollowness inside is greater wealth, which is why Nick closes the narrative with one final comment upon the green light itself. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, in one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. The green light is a warning concerning the catastrophes that can occur and even the, the pointlessness of the pursuit of an unattainable dream, and in particular, one marked by wealth. However, the green light is not the whole of what the narrative authors the title itself bestows upon Gatsby a kind of greatness, right? The great Gatsby. And if his wealth, if his illusory infatuation with Daisy, if his belief in the green light, if these were not what made him great, but rather what preyed upon him, then the question is, what did his greatness consist of? Carraway tells us at the very beginning, his extraordinary capacity for hope his romantic readiness, his infinite ability to dream great things and live in the pursuit of those dreams. It was only when these capacities were married to a vision of life with Daisy that they became poisonous. But alone, prior to this, they are what rendered him great, at least in the eyes of Nick Carraway. In that regard, the great Gatsby, more than anything else, is a reminder to dream and to live fully in light of the boundless capacities of this life. All right, so that is the interpretation. Now, if I could share just a, a couple of closing thoughts here, just kind of my own interaction with the novel. Warnings about the desire for wealth are always worth heeding because wealth is both wildly alluring in its promises and extraordinarily dangerous to fall in love with. However, my curiosity lies more in what the great Gatsby offers positively rather than in warning. 
because as a reminder to dream, the novel encourages the imagination, urging you really to dream about the kind of life that you could create, which isn't a harmful message, but I have found that it can go too far because it can give life this kind of unhealthy discontent that produces this restless agitation inside that's never satisfied and that rails against a simple contentedness. Maybe that's just me, or maybe that's just something that's uh, unique to my own experience. But I found that there's a tension to be managed between dreaming big and pursuing faithfulness in your current circumstances. Perhaps the call of the novel varies for that reason, depending on who the listener is and what their circumstances are. To those running faster, stretching further to finally grasp that green luminescence, the call is to stop and to realize that the pursuit of your dream is ruining you. To others, those indifferent to dreams, whose capacity for hope withered and died long ago, perhaps the call is to dream once more. I find myself, depending on the season, often wavering between the two. Perhaps that's why the novel has never landed flat or felt hollow to me, because it's always offered some realignment to the course I've fallen into. And if so, then perhaps there does exist some middle way that through every leap and falter splits between ambition and contentment and that when followed rises eventually like some dull and glittering path and lifts climbing and bounding its way recklessly to where amid the celestial glow it burns meek calm and at wonder forever